0: Welcome. This is Melissa Giles, Portfolio Manager with Americana Partners. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. I'll be reviewing the February market commentary provided by David M. Darst, Chief Investment Officer with Americana Partners. If you'd like a full copy of the report, please visit our website at www.americanapartners.com and request to join our distribution list. The first section I will be covering is an introduction to the commentary. Please note that any charts or graphics referenced are available by request through our website. Let's begin. While difficult to predict with any degree of confidence the duration, outcome, and global economic aftermath of the tragic coronavirus pandemic, our current expectation is for continued supportive global monetary policy, solid U.S. labor markets, sturdy personal consumption and decent economic growth, Somewhat higher levels of financial market volatility than experienced in 2019 and mid-to-high single-digit total returns for the S&P 500. From a portfolio positioning standpoint, we counsel caution and conservatism. With shorter duration, higher grade exposure in the fixed income realm, and caution around overexposure to high P.E. growth stocks, instead emphasizing high-quality defensive sectors with more reasonable earnings multiples and well-covered dividend support. One picture is worth a thousand words. The influential Norwegian realist playwright Henrik Ibsen, 1928-1906, first said, A thousand words leave not the same deep impression as does a single deed. After his passing, this saying was plagiarized and paraphrased into its modern expression. In March 1911, the Syracuse New York Advertising Men's Club held a banquet to discuss journalism and publicity. In an article in the Syracuse Post-Standard newspaper describing the dinner, the author quoted his editor as saying, Use a picture, it's worth a thousand words, responding to readers' feedback, including numerous helpful suggestions, and being sensitive to the many smartphone-driven time demands of modern life. This monthly, and occasionally in future months, we feature a select group of charts and associated commentary. We greatly appreciate your reactions and input. And this was by David M. Darst, CFA Chief Investment Officer with Americana Partners. Thank you, David. So now let's talk about asset bubbles. The graphic provided is a chart from Real Investment Advice that covers the time period from 1992 to 2016 that looks at growth of the net worth of U.S. households compared to U.S. nominal GDP through the dot-com bubble, housing bubble, and the central banker's bubble. The key takeaway is that with plenty of good news driving financial asset prices, including accommodative monetary authorities, a relaxation of trade tensions, the vote taken to conclude the impeachment proceedings, a robust labor market and solid wage growth, expansionary January readings in the ISM manufacturing and ISM non-manufacturing indices, and in Germany, despite December's industrial production weakness, and apparent bottoming in manufacturing orders and business expectations, we think it is important to keep in mind the outsized growth rate of U.S. households' net worth compared to the growth rate of U.S. nominal GDP. As the old saying goes, trees don't grow to the sky, and in our opinion, the length and strength of the bull markets in stock and bond prices should invoke increased caution, vigilance, and portfolio protection through rebalancing and risk management, and adequate cash levels where appropriate. Next, let's cover financial conditions. The graphic provided is a chart posted in the Wall Street Journal on January 24, 2020, in the Daily Shot that examines the Chicago Fed National Financial Conditions Index through a time period of 2002 to 2020. The key takeaway here is that the Chicago Federal Reserve National Financial Conditions Index, a weighted average of 105 indicators of risk, credit, and leverage in the financial system, is registering the easiest financial conditions in 20 years, providing a tailwind to financial asset prices. Although this can be seen as being supportive of continuing strength in risk assets, it is hard to know how long these conditions will, and can last, and how much they may be propping up the economy. This uncertainty is one of the reasons why we have a conservatively constructive investment stance at this time. The next graphic is by Goldman Sachs and charts the U.S. 10-year Treasury yields from 1790 to 2010. The key takeaway is that it is important to keep in mind how historically low current investment rates are seen over a 230-year time frame, When the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was approaching 16% in 1979-1980, to it was rare for investors to contemplate 10-year U.S. Treasury yields below 2%, where they traded for various lengths of time in 2012, in 2015, and 2016, and where they have languished ever since August 2019. Pointing to the 1870-1950 era of yields almost continuously below 4% in the United States, a number of economists maintain that such low yields may endure for quite some time, owing to low economic growth and contained inflation due to the technological progress and the price awareness and price reducing effects of the internet, among other factors. For now, We are of the opinion that the monetary stimulus-driven U.S. and global economy may in fact surprise to the upside this year, assuming the negative impact of the coronavirus on GDP is relatively contained, causing a modest rise in yields towards the end of 2020. Now, let's cover the Wuhan coronavirus. The two graphics in the original commentary are... One, a table from the Business Insider that compares the Wuhan coronavirus to other major viruses, and two, a chart that illustrates the number of infections from SARS in 2003 versus the coronavirus in 2020 and the swine flu in 2009. The key takeaway here is that comparing the Wuhan coronavirus to other major viruses of the past half century shows a considerably lower fatality rate but a higher infection rate in China than the global infection rates reported during the 2002 SARS and 2009 swine flu, H1N1, pandemics. Although the number of cases is now significantly higher than in the charts above, Over 44,000 as of February 12th, the fatality rate has continued to hover around 2% as shown. From a fundamental health and economic standpoint, the key questions involve the degree of success the authorities will have in containing the virus, the speed and efficacy of vaccine development and application, the immediate and intermediate term effects on travel, oil demand, global technology supply chains, and industrial activity consumer and investor psychology and behavior, and associated repercussions for financial stability and monetary policy. From an investment standpoint, investors should closely assess those securities and sectors which have experienced selling pressure due to virus-related worries, while considering the likely speed and magnitude of any rebound associated with more constructive outcomes and a return to normalcy. The facts are that the reported number of cases is rising, but at a slower rate, and it is still difficult to forecast the accuracy of the reported number of cases and the potential intermediate to long-term impact on Chinese and global GDP. We don't see a need to alter strategically diversified portfolios at this time. For those who like to invest tactically, there may be an opportunity to carefully accumulate positions using cash in some beaten-down areas of the market that focus on travel and real assets. The next graphics provided in the February commentary explore leading economic indicators. One graph from the Wall Street Journal's Daily Shot charts the Conference Board U.S. Leading Index month-over-month from 2005 to 2020. The second chart is a graph showing the leading indicator without the S&P 500. The key takeaway here is that the Conference Board Leading Economic Index, LEI, for the U.S. uses 10 key variables, including, among others, employment and manufacturing data, housing building permits, spreads between 10-year U.S. Treasury bonds and the Fed funds rate, the inflation-adjusted M2 money supply, consumer sentiment, and the S&P 500. Historically, these variables have turned downward before a recession and upward before an expansion. Driven by large, negative contributions from rising unemployment insurance claims and a drop in housing permits, the LEI declined 0.3% in December to 111.2. In 2016, it equals 100, following a 0.1% increase in November and a 0.2% decline in October. Our view is that even though the LEI has declined in four of the past five months, financial conditions and consumers' participation in the economy remain positive, which should support U.S. real GDP growth in the neighborhood of 2% for 2020. The next graphic is of the Baltic Freight Dry Shipping Index published in the Daily Shot of the Wall Street Journal. The graphic charts the Baltic Exchange Dry Index from 2015 to 2019. The key takeaway is that the Baltic Freight Dry Shipping Index is followed closely and commented on with some degree of frequency by the venerated Morgan Stanley investment strategist, Barton, Michael Biggs, 1932-2012. Among others, the Baltic Dry Index, BDI, has been issued daily since 1985 by the Baltic Exchange formed in 1823 and reflects the freight shipping rates for dry cargoes including grain, building materials, coal, and iron ore, the demand for shipping capacity versus the supply of dry bulk carriers, the ships themselves, and in recent decades, by extension, perceptions about the health of the Chinese economy as China has been a significant importer of these dry bulk tradables. Because dry bulk materials serve as raw material inputs to the production of intermediate and finished goods, including concrete, steel, electricity, and food, the index has also been viewed as an efficient leading economic indicator of global economic growth and production, even in a more service-oriented global economy. In our opinion, reflecting some degree of slowing in China's GDP, the sharp drop in the BDI has been a matter of some concern to us, dictating portfolio defensiveness and vigilance, particularly as the world considers the severity and implications of the Wuhan coronavirus not only on Chinese economic activity, but also on Asian, European, and other countries meaningfully linked with China from a trade and supply chain standpoint. Hastening to avoid drawing too draconian, a conclusion from its February 6th reading of 430, we nevertheless note that the BDI is down 96.4% from its all-time high of 11,793 reached in May 2008. The next graphic explores the S&P 500 2020 earnings outlook, specifically the S&P 500 quarterly earnings per share growth from 2015 through 2020. The key takeaway here is that according to analysts, bottom-up forecasts aggregated as of January 31st by Refinitiv and FactSet for the fourth quarter 2019, S&P 500 earnings are projected to decline 0.3% and revenues are projected to grow at positive 3.1%. For calendar year 2019 as a whole, S&P 500 companies are in the late stages of reporting nearly flat earnings of positive 0.3% and revenue growth of positive 4.1%. For the first quarter 2020, analysts are projecting earnings growth of positive 3.7% and revenue growth of positive 4.3%. For the second quarter 2020, analysts are projecting earnings growth of positive 6.1% and revenue growth of positive 4.8%. For the third quarter 2020, analysts are projecting earnings growth of positive 10.1% and revenue growth of positive 5.8%, and for fourth quarter 2020, analysts are projecting earnings growth of positive 13.2% and revenue growth of positive 6.1%. For calendar year 2020 in aggregate, analysts are projecting earnings growth of positive 9.1% and revenue growth of positive 5.2%. Past history has shown that in many years earnings and revenue estimates tend to be routinely downgraded as corporate results progress through each of the four earnings quarters. At this point, given the fairly constrained expectations for 2020 earnings and revenue growth, we believe that U.S. equity prices could achieve modestly positive gains of mid-single digits over the coming 12 months if such profit downgrades are of only a modest nature. The next graphic covers blow off U.S. equity market tops. The chart illustrates the 1920s and 1990s bull markets versus the current bull markets since March 9, 2009. The key takeaway here is that quite a number of market prognosticators have maintained that the current bull market, which began on March 9, 2009, is not likely to come to an end and reach its peak without widespread popular equity bullishness morphing into the classic parabolic price increase that characterizes a final euphoric price blow-off. Despite pockets of currently overextended valuations in certain highly traded technology and tech-enabled companies, given the net selling of equities on balance by U.S. households throughout a significant portion of this bull market run, we are inclined to agree. In football terms, while the two-minute warning has not yet been sounded, in our opinion, we appear to be somewhere in this bull market's fourth quarter. The next graphic explores commodity returns versus U.S. equity returns from the 1970s to 2019. The key takeaway is that low inflation, competition for more than a decade of rising prices for financial assets, and global recessionary forces have contributed to multi-year stagnation and neglect of real assets as an asset class. In our opinion, high levels of global indebtedness, central banks' balance sheet expansion through quantitative easing, money printing, and sovereign debt monetization argue for commencement of exposure to real assets, which may include natural resource equities, infrastructure, energy-related assets, real estate, precious metals, and other forms of exposure to commodities. Which brings us to our last section, the kismet of energy. The key takeaway here is that with heightened investor focus on decarbonization by pension funds, endowments, foundations, and other investors, the oil and gas sector has, in recent years, been downgraded, tobacco-fied, and even subject to some degree of revilement and vilification. The later two nouns each tracing their origin to the Latin word villus, meaning cheap or of low value. The energy sector has shrunk to a minuscule 4% of the total market capitalization of the S&P 500, down from over 15% in 2008 and close to 30% in 1980. Oil and gas remain a critically important element of the global economy. In our opinion, those energy sector companies able to continue investing in operations, manage the transition to new energies, and maintain their dividend capacity represent attractively valued, income-generating investments for the decade ahead. This concludes our February market commentary by David M. Darst. David is Americana Partners' Chief Investment Officer. We are available to answer questions you may have regarding the topics discussed. If you'd like a full copy of the report, please visit our website at www.americanapartners.com and request to join our distribution list. Any graphics referenced are available to you at your request. Thank you for listening. This is Melissa Giles, Portfolio Manager with Americana Partners. Stay invested.